Good morning. My name is Bobby Schweitzer, and I'm a second-year pre-med student here at Goshen. Rising healthcare costs, in-personal care, and changing in insurance policies are a few of the problems that plague the current healthcare situation. Regardless of whether or not you are choosing a field in the healthcare, um, you will encounter these problems throughout your life. Today, we will hear from two organizations that are combating these problems. The Center for Healing and Hope is a faith-based urgent care clinic for people who are uninsured, only one of two in the entire country. Director Claire Cravill and employee Vanessa Hirschberger, a 2010 Goshen graduate, will give us a window into their work. This past summer, I had the privilege of spending more than 200 hours interning at Maple City Healthcare Center. There, I saw healthcare providers who came to work each day looking to make people's lives better. Maple City Healthcare Center works to provide affordable, affordable care, to build community across cultures, and to help people empower themselves in the northeast part of Goshen. Founder Dr. James Gingrich, also a Goshen graduate, will tell us some of the center's stories. Both directors will be available afterwards to answer any questions that you might have. Center for Healing and Hope. Can I have your name? Sure. My name is Jennifer Sterling. Is this your first time here? Yeah, I lost my job and insurance a few months ago and can't afford to go to my old doctor. I've been out of my diabetes meds for a few weeks and I'm starting to feel pretty bad. A neighbor told me about you guys. Hello, welcome to the clinic. What's your name? Maria Rodriguez. Hi Maria, what's the reason for your visit today? I think I may have kidney problems. I'm in a lot of pain and it burns when I go to the bathroom. I haven't been to the doctor in seven years, but the pain was just getting unbearable, so I decided to come in. I have horrible back pain. My son's had a high fever for the past two days and I really didn't want to t go to the emergency room. Can you help me? I think I have strep throat. My throat has been hurting really bad for a few weeks and I haven't been able to go to school. Hi, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this, but we're full. We just have one doctor today and we've already registered the 10 patients that we're able to see. Could you tell me what's wrong? Maybe I can help point you in the right direction or have a nurse talk with you. She might have some advice. Again, I'm so sorry. I wish we could see you today. That's just a small glimpse into the life of the Center for Healing and Hope when we open up the clinic every session. My name is Vanessa Hirschberger and I'm the patient advocate at our Goshen Clinic. And this is Elizabeth and Andrea, two of our weekly volunteers. So thank you guys. People come to our clinic for a variety of different reasons, but the thing that they all have in common is that they lack access to the health care that they need because they don't have health insurance or they have insufficient health insurance. Our goal is to be a bridge to the healthcare community doing what we can at our clinic, and then connecting people to other healthcare and community resources that they may need. For some, like Sylvia, this is as easy as pointing her towards a program that offers free screening mammograms for women over 40 who have limited resources. For others, like Jenny, it can be much more complicated than that. She came to our clinic to get a simple sports physical to participate in soccer at school. It turns out she has a heart murmur, and the doctor doesn't think it's safe for her to engage in strenuous activity until she's been checked out by a cardiologist. 
So my job in this situation is to try to connect her with an affordable cardiologist. Come to find out those two words don't often go together, affordable and cardiologist. So in order to get a fuller picture of Jenny's health history, we had her medical records sent from her previous doctor in California. And while I waited to get her records, I researched her options for a cardiologist in this area. And finding an affordable cardiologist is not easy, let alone a pediatric cardiologist, which is what she needed. Luckily, in her case, Jenny had some testing done with her previous doctor, and once reviewed by our doctor, was sufficient to clear her to play, to play soccer. Not everyone is that lucky. Some people's stories end quite sadly, like Juanita, who didn't come to the doctor until she had progressed to the final stages of breast cancer, which she didn't even know that she had. When she finally came in, she had major health concerns, and the volunteer clinician who saw her suspected that it might be cancer. We were able to connect her to the specialist that she needed very quickly, but the cancer was already at stage four, and she passed away a few weeks later in the hospital, leaving behind a husband and three young kids. We can never really know, but maybe if she had been able to access affordable care earlier, her story could have ended differently. Other people's stories end in great success. I had the pleasure of working with Antonio a few months ago. He first came to our clinic because he was going through severe depression and anxiety. His wife and kids had recently been deported to Honduras, where they were originally from, leaving him here to wonder when he would ever see them again. Though he is a legal resident, they were not and were forced to leave the country. He met with one of our clinicians several times, and then at this clinician's suggestions, met with me so that I could find out as much as possible about his situation and write him a hardship letter. This letter would be part of an appeal to immigration authorities to have his family re returned here to their home. So I met with Antonio and found out that he is an incredible part of this community, working to support his family, volunteering at local organizations, and contributing to this community in incredible ways. I wrote that letter almost a year ago, and then I didn't hear anything from Antonio for a long time. Then, just about a month ago, Antonio came back to the clinic to visit, and he had his wife and kids with him. They had just been allowed to return to the US and be reunited with their father and husband. These are the kinds of stories that I have the privilege of being a part of because of the Center for Healing and Hope. It's an incredible honor to be able to help point people in the direction that they need and walk alongside them through difficult situations. I hope these stories inspire you and help you learn to know some of the realities for people in this community. So to use Goshen College words, I'm making peace with a Goshen College degree in peace, justice, and conflict studies, and I'm making a difference in, a in the lives of those in our community who need help gaining access to healthcare. I invite you too to be part of healing our community piece by piece. Thank you. Hi, I'm Claire Crable, the director of the Center for Healing and Hope, and it's really a privilege to work with Vanessa and people like her at the center. In our community and in our country, we have a pretty big problem. Um, our health care is the most expensive in the world, and in fact, it's 40% more expensive than the next developed country. And we also have a poorer quality than many of the other countries where we're ranked 37th in performance. 
Bringing it down closer to home, um, within our county, we have 27,000 people who don't have health insurance. That's 16% of our population, and that number really is not okay. When we look at how many um, people live in our county compared to the number of doctors, we know that we have about 1,200 people per physician, and the benchmark is almost half of that. Um, so we just don't have enough physicians for the people who live here. You boil all that down, and what that results in is that our coroner reported last year that somewhere between 12 and 18 people died in Elkhart County because they didn't access health care when they had an easily treated medical condition. That's tragic. Knowing we have this problem is what motivates me to do the work that I do. I wanted to be part of the solution for that. There's two, um, there's a scripture actually, and there's just a quote um, that I keep on my desk just as a constant reminder. And one of those is Galatians 5.6. And that is that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself as love. And a quote that I keep is this. If you've come to help me, then you can leave. But if you've come because you see my challenge as your challenge, then perhaps we can work together. So it's combining these things of wanting to show God's love to the people around me and um, wanting to be able to come alongside of people um, who I know are suffering, because I know that I too can be in their shoes one day. So when we look at this problem, the question we can have is whose responsibility is it to care for these people? Whose responsibility is it if I'm the one who needs the help to come and help me? Do we turn to our government, to our hospitals, to our doctors? Do we turn to our family and our friends? Do we turn to our church? When we look back at Jesus' time, they had a health care problem then too. Um, people didn't have modern health care. They didn't know where to turn. They didn't know where to go. And looking through the Gospels, we can come across story upon story of Jesus reaching out to heal people. We can think of the lepers, the blind man, those who were crippled, the man with the withered hand, the woman who was bleeding. And in fact, the Gospels will talk about 41 different instances of physical healings. And Christ healed because he's love and he's the Prince of Peace. In response to all this, both there being a problem and believing that the church is part of the solution to that problem, the Center for Healing and Hope was formed in 1999 and it became a nonprofit in 2002. And since then, over 28,000 times, a person has walked through our doors and received urgent health care. The mission of the center is to increase access to health care through our three urgent care clinics and to provide advocacy all in the name of Christ. And this is supported by the people of our community, the church, its hospitals, and our medical providers. In 2012, we're probably going to see about 3,300 patient visits. We'll make about 500 referrals to affordable health care and social services. And we're going to do this because we have about 250 volunteers that show up to our clinics um, month after month, some of them week after week, to work with us. 
We're open Monday through Friday. Um, we have seven different clinic sessions, and those sessions tend to last, last about two to three hours long. We're technically a free clinic, and what that means is that while we request a donation, and we request a donation of $25, if people can't pay, we're never going to turn anybody away. But we're also, we take the first come or the first served, and as Vanessa kind of alluded to, we have to turn people away. And this year we think we'll probably, um, well we have already turned away over 700 people um, that we couldn't, we couldn't care for because we didn't have enough providers. Now please understand that urgent care is not an ideal form of health care for people who don't have health insurance. We are a safety net in the community. We're the place you go when you have no place else to go. There's this assumption that if you're sick or you have an ongoing health care and you don't have any place to go, that you're going to go to the ER. Well, the majority of our patients respond that they wouldn't do that. Um, they can't afford it. And they don't want a medical bill that they can't afford, so they don't go. So there's this disparity that lies between people who have health insurance and have the money to pay for their health care and those who don't. There's a lot of stats we could use to talk about that, but that would be a lecture in and of itself. Um, but there is this disparity for people who, who don't have that access, and that's not okay. And that should make you feel uncomfortable, um, knowing that, that you have there's a lot of people who are in your community people who may be your friends, people that you're going to encounter in the grocery store, who maybe have high blood pressure that's going untreated, or diabetes that's going untreated, that there's parents who have sick kids and don't know where to bring them, and they're watching their kids suffer. That should make us all uncomfortable. So I ask you guys as students to just consider, as you're going through your education, what do you want to do to try to change that? You can work directly with health services, but there's a lot of other things that can be done as well. Um, getting people affordable housing, getting people good food, these are all things that help to make our community more healthy. And I think perhaps the most important thing is being kind to those around us and treating them the way that we would want to be treated. A question to ask yourself is that this, is healthcare a right? or is it a privilege? At the Center for Healing and Hope, we would rather not exist. Um, we, would, we would say that we would rather work ourselves out of a job because we'd rather that places like ours didn't need to be, that people could just get access to health care. <clears throat> Martin Luther King once said that of all the forms of inequality, injustice in health care is the most shocking and inhumane. Um, now, James from Maple City Healthcare is going to come and talk to you where they are working also to right that injustice. Thank you for inviting me to be here. I'm James Nelson Gingrich, and I work at Maple City Healthcare Center. Um, in the late 70s, when I was a student here, I uh, was part of a household of young people um, from members of the assembly congregation that lived in North Goshen, in the community right where Maple City Healthcare Center is located now. And it was in that context that I became passionate about 
how we create spaces where community forms across the socioeconomic and the sociocultural barriers that usually keep people apart in our society. Now, when I was a student here, I, I started off as a history major, and then I finished that and did a German major, and it really wasn't until the last year I was here that I decided to do a biology major to prepare for medical school because I became a, uh, intrigued by the notion of using healthcare as an entry point into that community and working at that community formation work in the context of medical care. So I went to medical school to do this experiment, this project, not really primarily become a doctor. Eight years later, when I came back, um, I started actually carrying out this experiment, which has turned into Maple City Healthcare Center. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the demographics of the people we serve, uh, the people who come to Maple City Healthcare Center. Um, over half of our patients are 18 years of age and younger, so we have a very young population, lots of young families. Um, between 50 and 60% of our patients speak Spanish as their primary language, and many of them are undocumented. Um, and uh, over 80% of our patients live below 200% of the federal poverty line, which means that their kids would qualify for free or reduced lunches. Um, we have, over the last 24 years, developed a kind of a model for how we think about healthcare and what we're trying to do here. And let me go through a few of those elements of that model. The first is that we really strive to be vision-driven. Now that may sound like it doesn't mean much, but in fact, in our country, the problem, as I would see it, is that we don't have a healthcare system at all. We have a medical industry which is very well developed. And it does a very good job at what an industry will do a good job at, which is controlling the marketplace, creating monopolies where possible, and maximizing profits. Uh, it provides enough health care to uh, somewhat satisfy people to, to, to let the system continue as it is. But it's not really organized around health care. And it doesn't work. Um, primarily in terms of providing good health care for the population. So part of our vision-drivenness is we want in our little place here to be about health care, to be about community development and health care in that context, and uh, to have that really work. In our funding, we don't go after funding sources just because there's money available. We never apply for a grant unless it's something we already want to be doing. Um, so that sense of keeping the vision for what we're about, first and foremost, being business smart, but not business driven, uh, is really one of those core parts of our model. A second component is that we're values-based, meaning we really try to live out of some core values. Uh, again, that may sound trite, but I don't think it is. Um, every program we look at, every, everything we do, we, we try to test it by three basic things that we're trying to do, the values that we're trying to live out. One is, does it foster long-term relationships? Relationships with our patients, relationships in the community, relationships between staff. 
The second is, does it foster integration? Integration of care for patients so that medical care isn't a series of commodities that it's bought and sold in the marketplace, but is something that has an integrity of its own that fits together. But also integration into the community, into the staff, um, and a sense of personal integration that what we're working at here, what we're doing, fits with who we want to be and what we want to be about. And the third question, the core value that we always ask ourselves is, is this empowering to people? Is this actually helping people to do what they can do themselves? Uh, is it empowering for us? Is it empowering for them? One of the most basic things we're about is doing meaningful work in the context of meaningful relationships and helping to create a space where our neighbors and our patients can do the same. So we seek to be vision-driven, we seek to be values-based. And the third element is we really work at trying to function out of a context of abundance, or at the very least, efficiency. There's nothing in my experience which stifles imagination quicker than a spirit of scarcity. So part of what we try to do is to create a context, both in our staff, in our board, in our community, among our patients, that. When we work together in this kind of a way, there is enough, and we can, we can make things work. There's enough for everybody. Everybody has a place. Now, let me just give you a little bit of a sense of the kind of services we offer, the sort of the panorama of programmatic activity we have. In trying to work at primary care, we have a variety of primary care providers, nurse practitioners, physicians. We see patients in the office. We see them at home when necessary. We see them in a nursing home. We follow them in their hospital care. We have a nutritionist on staff. We have a social worker. We have counseling. We have pregnancy care coordination. We have pregnancy circles where pregnant women um, work together around the issues around their pregnancies. We have doulas who support women in labor. We have lactation consultant who does home visits and, and helps women with breastfeeding. We have chronic disease case management for patients with diabetes and hypertension or hyperlipidemia or obesity or... Um, tobacco addiction. We have healthy living groups. We have medication assistance to provide affordable medications for patients who need them. Um, we have Medicaid enrollment uh, on site for patients who need that, and our services are available bilingually um, in English and Spanish for people who need that. That's sort of an expanded range of primary care services that you might expect in many offices, but it's certainly more extensive than most. But in addition to that, we offer dental care, affordable dental care to all of our patients, optometry care. We offer uh, all of our patients access to Clubhouse, which is an organization that strives to create a community of hope and restoration for people with mental illnesses, again, through principles of shared work in the context, meaningful work in the context of meaningful relationships. Um, and all these services I've talked about are available on a sliding fee scale. Some of them are free, but most of them are available on a sliding fee scale with discounts up to 90% uh, for folks who are lowest income. And for those who can't afford that, they can volunteer in the community and we'll give them credit for that uh, towards their health care bill. Our goal is to make sure that this range of services is available to all of our patients. If they have insurance, great. If they don't have insurance, we'll help them try to get on Medicaid if they qualify. If they can't get on Medicaid, they have the sliding fee discount available, and it's affordable. And if they don't have, can't afford that, 
they can do some volunteer activities in the community and, and have access. Our goal is to build long-term relationships with our patients and have the care be affordable and accessible and for this to be their medical home. In addition to this kind of uh, arrangement of range of, of services uh, and programs, we also have uh, additional groups that meet there, like we have a garden club, we have a community garden on our lot. Uh, that, that people are engaged in and work in together. We have a group called Our Future Together where people from diverse parts of the neighborhood think about what kind of a shared future they want for their children in this neighborhood. This includes people who are strongly anti-immigrant and people who are themselves immigrants. So a variety of additional programs that we work at. We found that we actually are able to do all this stuff in quite a sustainable way. Uh, it's important to us to have high quality services and uh, one of the things we get from our Medicaid uh, enrollment is we get lots of data about quality and cost. Um, and in 2010, we had the highest quality scores in the state of Indiana for Medicaid providers. Our goal is to be data driven and relationship based. So we really look at what is the data and what do we need to do, where are our how are our diabetic patients doing in terms of uh, a whole variety of things that they're trying to control from weight to lipids to blood pressure to smoking cessation. We're also extremely cost effective. Uh, our Medicaid patients cost the state on average over the last 15 years 40% less than the state average. That's 40% off the top in global costs. And that's because we do more intensive primary care but our patients have between 60 and 70% fewer hospitalizations, many fewer ER visits, they see specialists less, they have fewer costs for medications and laboratories and x-rays, and they have better quality outcomes. So better quality primary care can lead to lower cost and better outcomes at the same time. We don't have to pit quality against cost. Another part of our sustainability is that uh, our place is, I, I find it, joy-filled. Uh, our staff eat together a lot. Food, shared food, a big part of building community. A big, I mean, every board meeting we have shared food. Almost every staff meeting we have shared food. Whenever the, the Centering Pregnancy group gets together, there is shared food. When our Future Together groups get together, there is shared food. Uh, Shared food is part of what binds us together and gives us a sense of uh, being a community together. Um, so that sense of enthusiasm and joy is part of, of our model and its sustainability. And the imagination that comes from a group of people working together in a context of sufficiency is inspiring and makes it a lot of fun. We're also working at thinking about what about this model can be replicated? What can others uh, do as well? And um, we recently received an award from the Kresge Foundation for uh, innovations in healthcare delivery and are recognized by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation just recently as one of 30 sites nationwide that they are studying as models, exemplary models for primary care to develop national models for how primary care can be done more effectively um, and uh, with better quality. I want to tell you a brief story about how our board works. Now, most places, a board is sort of a necessary structure that you don't really think of as having being much fun. 
Um, and our board over the years, I mean, when we started, our board was made up of a bunch of patients, and when it was a matter of cleaning up an old fire station and having hillbilly hot dog sales for fundraisers, um, they were very engaged. And over time, our low-income patients gradually drifted away as we became more and more focused on the typical board functions of administrative oversight, policy oversight, and fiscal oversight, all these great middle-class agendas. Um, and then one day, I was, and so over time, our board ended up being made up of a bunch of middle-class white Mennonites. Extremely well-intentioned, extremely dedicated, but not exactly our community. And then one day, I was writing a grant application, which is something I don't usually do for inspiration, but this grant application asked the question, how is the diversity of your community reflected in the diversity of your board? And I said, so we went back to say, what can we do differently? Where in our organization is cross-cultural community stuff working the best? And the answer for us was our pregnancy groups. We'd had a terrible time getting Latina women into pregnancy um, education. They would come for the medical appointments, but when we tried to schedule classes or other educational things, they wouldn't show up. We tr did it bilingually, of course, didn't work. We tried to um, have it do home visits ahead of time to have people introduce themselves, the teachers introduce themselves to bring them in, didn't work. We tried to schedule their appointments in the office around the edges of a prenatal class, didn't work. So we decided to adopt a totally different model, which is a model that was developed by the midwifery school at Yale called Centering Pregnancy, where you get a group of eight or 10 people, uh, women who are pregnant together for a two hour session about 10 times in the course of their pregnancy, and they talk about the things that matter to them in their pregnancy. And a provider like me or a nurse midwife is there for all these sessions. But our primary role is to, to foster the conversation to make sure everybody is adding what they, contributing what they have to bring out of their life experience in their questions. It functions then both for education purposes, but it also serves as a support group for these women over time. And we were doing some in English and some in Spanish, and over time we had fewer and fewer English-speaking uh, pregnant women and more and more Latina pregnant women, and we didn't have enough English-speaking women to keep a group growing. And so we toyed with the idea of having a bilingual group with interpreters. So we talked to the folks at Yale to see if they thought that would be a good idea, and they said, absolutely not. It's going to totally interfere with the group process. Don't do it. So we listened to them and did our own thing anyway. So we ended up having groups that were bilingual with interpreters, and we found it was such a rich cross-cultural experience where these women were talking to each other about all these wonderful culturally mediated things about child-rearing and pregnancy and breastfeeding and formed wonderful places for people to get to know each other in ways that they otherwise wouldn't have gotten to know each other. It was working great. So when I had to answer this question for this grant application about our board, what came to my mind was what's working is our pregnancy groups and how can we reinvent our board in the image of our pregnancy groups. So we asked, uh, we, we restructured our board and invited new pe people to join us, a bunch of Latinos and a bunch of low-income folks. And we had a new board that was made up of a great mix of these folks. And that was great for the diversity. And then the question was, how, how are we going to function together in ways that aren't going to just drive low-income folks and people who don't think in these middle-class institutional ways away again? And so what we come back to over and over is story. 
narrative. The power of narrative to shape us as one community, as one people. The power of the, our, how do we find our individual stories in the bigger story of our community, or if you will, in the bigger story of God's work in the world? And how do we let that bigger story of God's work in the world shape our individual stories? So our board meetings are on a Tuesday evening once a month. They happen at 7 o'clock. Everybody comes tired because it's the end of a long day. We open the first hour of our meeting always with a story round where we go the whole way around the circle and people tell stories around a particular question. It might be a question like, tell us about some time when you experienced unexpected hospitality in this community. Or tell us about some time when you experienced alienation. Or tell us about some time when you were in crisis and what did you learn about yourself. Or tell us about how money was handled in your family of origin. Over time, we get to know each other well. We get to know our fears, our anxieties, our risk-taking behavior. And over time, we develop a shared story about what this healthcare center is about and what this board's about and how we're going to function together. And then the second hour of our meeting is what we call housekeeping. That's when we do budgets and policies and all that other kind of stuff. That's just housekeeping. The real agenda is developing a shared story. At the end of that meeting, invariably, energy levels are high. People are eager to stick around and wash dishes together, because we've always had shared food, of course. And some people refer to it as the social highlight of their month. Nowhere else do they encounter people this different at this depth. It's part of forming community. It's part of what we want in terms of healthy community for our patients and for our neighborhood. What I wish for you is please foster those passions that align with who you really want to be. Nurture those passions. And then don't quench the spirit. Thank you. Thank you very much, James and Claire and Vanessa. If you, any of you have questions that you would like to direct to any of these folks, they'll be around for a little while afterwards. Otherwise, you're dismissed. Thank you for coming. <laughs>